So I'm reading on writing by Stephen King, and as far as Thanksgiving introverted days go, it's been a lot of fun. And obviously, no matter how many advice books you get, and you can get a copy of The Elements of Style, you can do No Shave November, or write a book in a month or read bird by bird by ad lamont like yeah we know writing is about these simple steps you can take but ultimately stephen king is stephen king because of tabitha king and it's about the support you have and it's about the people that make you feel that the thing that you care about and you yearn for is worth pursuing creatively and so i feel that so strongly and i want to say thank you thank you for today thank you for this chance to share this so This is an episode of New Problems that is so possible because of you, your love, your support, and I'm grateful to do it. So, this is episode 22 of New Problems, the spiritual gift of encouragement. Contrary to popular belief, I answer the telephone. Call me, assholes. I will answer the phone. At least I answer the phone way more than I get credit for. Here's proof. Someone called me this morning. And I answered. Because I like friends. And I'm an unfriendly person. And calling me on the phone is just a regular thing friends do. Call me, beat me. If you want to reach me, call me literally whenever. It's so fine. The point is, today, someone called me, and I answered. We talked for six minutes and 59 seconds. I wasn't keeping track of time. It was a full, entirely fine conversation. And a lot can be said, and a lot can happen in six minutes and 59 seconds. I mean calculations would suggest that you could theoretically lose your virginity at least three times in that time span. Point is, I wasn't keeping track of time. And it wasn't like I was shortchanging this very pleasant addition to my morning. Apparently, people are getting multiple Christmas trees these days. Which is great. Thanks for telling me. I was wished a great day, which I am having, and then I hug up the phone. Six minutes and 59 seconds, just a second short of heaven. But that number, six minutes and 59 seconds, that stood out to me. That number felt relevant. Six minutes and 59 seconds. I didn't really get why that mattered until I did. Because once upon a time, I used to pay for my cell phone calls by the minute. That was totally a thing. Each month, 300 minutes or 200 minutes, or maybe I was splurging and I'd pay for 500 minutes. The point is, Cell phones were hawked and traded by the minutes, which means there was a time in my life 
I absolutely would have hung up the phone on the 59 seconds of a minute regardless of what we were talking about. One second longer would have added up to paying and using one of those full minutes. And I'd have lost 59 seconds to babble out the Mets or my problems or whatever was vexing me in my early 30s. I want to be clear about this. I was paying for the phone by the minute. Phone calls and time actually were money. Poverty Cellular was charging by the minute. Each second in the minute was all the same minute. A seven minute and one second phone call would have been an absolute waste of my money because it should have been eight. I would have given this phone call an extra 58 seconds because technically it was already paid for. And if I'm already paying for it, I might as well lose my virginity again. I don't really consider myself a brainy person. I mean, I'm creative. I make a podcast. I don't eat carbs anymore, so I can tell you all of my strategies for roasting vegetables. But I don't play games like Sequence or Sudoku. Definitely not for fun. But there must have been a time in my life I was doing these Sherlockian calculations on a daily basis because I was poor. And you cannot be poor without having a calculator in your head firing at 180 beats per minute. How things have changed, I promise you. I don't know how much money is on my Metro card right now. Praise God! I Metro cards are $2.75 each way. I put a random amount of money whenever I need a Metro card. And for reasons totally out of my control, I don't really worry about it. Because if I ever swipe and I can't get on the train... I just go to the subway booth and I put in another $20 and hope that lasts me another week in this global pandemic. That was not always the case because there were times I would have no money except the $2.75 on my MetroCard. I would have to pick up a paycheck in Soho, which means I would have to deposit that check and get the $100 the bank assumes I'm good for before the rest of the check clears. I could not live my life without being fully convinced there was $2.75 on my MetroCard. I don't know how much money is on my metric card right now because at the end of the day, it could be $50, it could be $2.75. I just assume if I want to get on a subway, I'm going to get on it. Which is kind of incredible. Now, this isn't to say that I've just stopped doing these kind of Sherlockian calculations about my regular ordinary life. I, I bought a used sweatshirt that's bright pink with asymmetrical snowflakes and it's been five days since I've worn it which is four days too long 
and I am so ready to risk it all and wear it now, but it's dirty. And here's the issue. I think that there's $4.50 on my laundry card, which means I have enough money to pay for the small $2.75 dryer. But I usually use the 40 pound washer, that's $5.50. The laundromat on my block is clean and fine, but they charge 35 cents for eight minutes in the dryer. And that's not intuitive math. I do not know how much it costs to do a load of laundry because I'm not Janet Yellen. I don't work for the Federal Reserve Bank. I make a podcast. I honestly don't know how much it costs me each time I do a load of laundry. But I cannot be sure if I have enough. I'm not going to go to the laundromat with $4.50 in my card and a prayer that that'll be enough. Which is why I cannot have my asymmetrical pink snowflake sweatshirt tomorrow. Upon hearing me complain about whatever today's calculation is, my roommate, who is the only voice of utopian sanity in my life, said, Robert, why don't you put more money on the card? That is a good point. I should put more money on the card. Me having $4.50 on my laundry card is not a limitation in any way. I could put $1,000 on my Metro card and nothing in my life would fundamentally change. Except the assumption that I'd be making that I will be around long enough to do $1,000 worth of laundry in my future. Just because I can do the calculations of millennial poverty doesn't mean I want to do them forever. Putting a thousand dollars worth of laundry money on a laundromat card only matters because that means that I'll have this same predicament someday in the future. Which all things considers is a miracle, but it's also a little bittersweet. In 2008, David Brooks, the opinion writer for the New York Times, wrote a short opinion piece. He was filling in for Bob Hubert that day. That article is called The Formerly Middle Class. When I was in college, I read the New York Times opinion pages daily. I don't know and never would have imagined David Brooks would make a cameo appearance on this podcast, but this op-ed from 2008 has always stuck with me. Partially because I always thought Bob Herbert wrote it. Not so. It was by David Brooks. Herbert was taking the day off. I looked it up. Here's what he says. The formerly middle class, Brooks describes, are people who achieved middle class status at the end of the long boom and then lost it. To them, the gap between where they are and where they used to be will seem wide and daunting. Career reversals, lifestyle reversals, housing reversals, 
will all lead to a psychological cocoon when you realize that you have to go back to the apartment complex after a decade of a house with a nice yard and two cars. Brooks concludes, in this recession, maybe even more than other ones, the last people to join the middle class will be the first ones out. And it won't be material deprivation that bites. It will be the loss of a social identity, the loss of social networks, the loss of the little status symbols that suggest an elevated place in the social order. These reversals are bound to produce alienation and a political response. If you want to know where the next big social movements will come from, I'd say the formerly middle class. Poverty PTSD is what happens when the formerly middle class gets a job again and then a yard again and life feels like it's okay again because they're not at the apartment complex anymore. But part of you always suspects you always will be. And that's where you're headed. Poverty PTSD is knowing no matter how much cash you lose and get again, you may lose it again. And so you have to keep as much of it for yourself. I think about my poverty in three ways. It is possible that I think my parents were poorer than they actually were, which probably made me an awesome kid because I really didn't ask for shit. You never really know how poor you are anyway because life is just life and more or less, I feel like my life was marginally okay. Our life was fine, but I always thought my parents were poor. I was raised poor, which means I hated getting things. I hated when my parents did nice things for me because anything given to me was a thing that needed to be directed elsewhere. Even if you give me something now, that is a thing that you could have done to add to your high yield savings account, which is a return on investment I myself cannot guarantee. I'm a product of the Great Recession. The Great Recession is something I cannot really describe clearly, but if you aren't aware, it's really helpful. If you ever hear the phrase Great Recession, always connect it with the American and global housing market. The Great Recession is about real estate. Once home values simply stopped growing, people who had mortgages and banks who made money giving loans had no loans to give. So they were screwed. The Great Recession was about housing and subprime mortgage rates and all matter of things that honestly had nothing to do with me. I was 18. I was not in the market for a home loan, a subprime mortgage, and I had no shares in Lehman Brothers. The Great Recession was something I could read about on the news but ultimately shouldn't have anything to do with me. And yet, it was such a massive event in such a powerful part of my psyche. The Great 
recession was a doozy of a time to be in a liberal arts college. Because every week, headline after headline and class after class was basically a bleak rumination on kids. You're not going to get a job. What did I know? I just like sports radio and probably want to run a radio show. But I'd sit in class after class and hear a constant variation on the same theme. Oh, there are no jobs for you. And every metric in the New York Times and the USA Today money section agreed. Why were we getting communications degree learning about how many watts terrestrial radio stations can broadcast according to the FCC when every radio station in the country is getting replaced by some Swedish thing called Spotify? It was tough. And it made a huge difference. I probably took jobs that I really didn't need to get. And I probably wasted time looking for work that I never really imagined I was going to hear back from with such a bleakness and pessimism because I had poverty PTSD because of the Great Recession. But even before the banks crashed in 2008, I was a child of Maribel Diaz. Maribel, the office manager of my job in high school, taught me so much about how I think about life. I made $10 an hour working in the basement of the New York Historical Society. Researchers would Xerox primary documents and give me the copies to transcribe. They'd put them on the website. They'd give them to people who requested them. Very simple, elegant work. And I spent so much money that year. I bought a lot of clothes on Jamaica Avenue in Queens. That was my most Queens era from a fashion perspective. I never could really let myself go triple X in size, but I was a solidly XL kid and I wore massive leather jackets and massive t-shirts and massive jeans with hoops on them. I don't actually think they're called hoops, but I don't really have whatever that was on my jeans anymore. It was a different time and it was the time of Maribel Diaz. Maribel was from the Bronx. Maribel possessed that rare human quality where certain people can say the most outrageous things and you can never really be sure if they're true or not true. I aspire to be one of those people. When Toy Story says that all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way, he was talking about Maribel Diaz's family. There was no family as uniquely unhappy as hers, which is pretty captivating to hear. I could be so wrong about this, but I'm fairly certain she was incarcerated and this job was her post-incarcerated next best step. I liked her. She must have been dropped from a certain place and time in life where everything you say is just ridiculously profound. And the most profound thing that she would say over and over again were these three words. Times are tough. All this to say, it doesn't really matter how much money is on my Metro card. It doesn't matter how much money I've spent on sweatshirts and kombucha and rent and the stock market, mezcal, Bibles, whatever I'm doing with my money in this moment, it doesn't really make a difference because I think about life 
exactly the same way as I have all those years ago. Today, I'm a working class man sitting on a bench in Bed-Stuy. And it's glorious. The sun is shining through the leaves. This kid in purple shoes is playing basketball. A lacrosse bro is using a handball wall to play lacrosse because Bed-Stuy Brooklyn just isn't what it used to be. And there's just a little yellow left on the trees. I'm drinking a Christmas ale in my ceramic mug and listening to Swedish House Mafia's remix of Every Teardrop is a Waterfall, wearing a triple X sweatshirt from my favorite band, Los Campesinos. This is fun. This is such a fun day. But it doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, Maribel is right. Maribel has always been right. Times are tough. And that's how I really feel times being tough that's not rocket science i don't need a sociology degree to like read that and the tea leaves and think yeah something's wrong here the miracle is actually that times are tough but i know that i can deal the miracle is that i always got my metro card calculations right the miracle is that i never let a call in before i wasted a minute the miracle is that there was always a combination of resources and luck and preparation that would make me avoid any real calamity because certain people just deal and if i can be accounted to do anything in life it's that i'm always going to find a way without anyone needing to notice. I want to express that there are people listening to this podcast right now who are poor. Poor people exist, and it may be us. Acknowledging our poverty is my way of saying, you just need more money. That's all. I'm not acknowledging your worth ethic, your relationship with or to God, your politics. I'm not acknowledging how you were raised, how you spend money, if you have addictions, if you have any moral failings. I'm really not acknowledging anything other than you just need more cash. Poverty is about cash, and I just didn't have it. Now, it's taken a lot to realize, but there's nothing about myself I needed or need to morally or ethically apologize for, at least as it relates to my money. Obviously, you could contract trace my life at key moments in history and come up with some slightly bigger stones in the pond of my life that made the ripples of my life slightly more impactful. There are things Obviously, I changed. I wish I could do things differently. Things happened. But it's also fair to say that poverty is just about needing more cash. And so if there is a person listening who just needs more cash. Yeah, that makes a difference. And it's going to linger with you. Poverty PTSD is knowing even if you ever get the cash you need, 
the sickness, the heaviness, the doubt, the shame, the embarrassment, it's going to linger in your physical body and you've got to find a way to get it out. And the only way to get rid of poverty PTSD is to give your money away. Since 1970, the UN has set a target for donor countries to contribute 0.7% of their GDP on foreign aid. Figures from 2017 show that Britain was the only member of the G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, United States, to meet the 0.7% target according to statistics published by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The only donors more generous than Britain by proportion of their economies are Sweden, giving 1.01%, Luxembourg at 1%, Norway 0.99%, and Denmark 0.72%. The Non-Western countries that exceeded the UN target were the United Arab Emirates and Turkey. Kevin Watkins, chief executive at Save the Date, called cuts in 2020 to the overseas aid budget unprincipled, unjustified, and profoundly harmful both to Britain's reputation and more importantly, to millions of people around the world. Foreign aid is another one of these overly politicized parts of regular political life. And I don't know the nuances of the United Kingdom's budget and definitely not their foreign aid budget. But here's the point. I know how much money I give away. I once had a job that taught me how to do Excel, and when you know how to do Excel, beyond just, I know how to do Excel for a resume, you kind of want to keep doing it. So even if I'm just a guy drinking mezcal with my ginger juice, I find excuses to use Excel whenever I need to. And the one way I use Excel is to make my budget. So I can tell you exactly how much money I give away. It's 12% of my after-tax income. 6% goes to my church and what I call my temple tax. And the other 6% goes into something that's called giving. Giving is just the fact that I am a poor person with poverty PTSD, and that just means I have to give my money away. Now, there's a lot of reasons not to want to give your money away. And one of the big ones is realizing that there are whole countries that are successful because they have violently expanded via war, capitalism, and raging industrialization. And they are asked to give 0.7%. I really shouldn't have to give any money to anybody anywhere. 
But the problem with poverty PTSD is that there's always a reason to keep your money. There's always a reasonable argument to be made that there's someone richer who should be paying for this shit. Someone richer should be paying for quality schools. Someone richer should be paying for the food pantry down the street. Someone richer should be paying for the regular things that make life less brutal. I totally agree. But the antidote to poverty PTSD is not waiting for the idea you just have more cash and you just have an excess amount of cash that you'll just feel comfortable giving it away. Because you know that day will never come. New life, new life outside of poverty PTSD is just rediscovering how you see yourself. And rediscovering your place in the world and actually getting the confidence that you are one of the prayers that are getting answered in any moment you walk into. I mean that you are an answer to someone's prayer. There's so much to be said about using your money thoughtfully, responsibly, and principally. But you don't need new life to make that possible for you. My parents were massive believers in being good stewards of people's money. And that makes sense because nobody is asking you to be anything but responsible. But never let your sense of responsibility be a mask for your fear. And scarcity is a product of fear. And poverty is a reaction to scarcity. So if you have ever been impoverished and your sense of scarcity is a product of fear, you have to rediscover what your life can be which means the only way to make your money a reality in your life that is not based on fear is to give it away. Jesus, of course, had so much to say about money and their principled and their responsible. And naturally, I consider them And we have whole parts of our country where people consider them. And that's fine. But ultimately, the best thing in the Christian Bible about money and value wasn't said by Jesus. It was actually a woman who understood the nature of true value. This is from Luke chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, 
she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And he wiped them from her hair, of her head, and began kissing his feet and anointing him with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this Jesus were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table said, who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If there is ever a principle by which you need to think about your money and I need to think about my money, it's the idea that I either can accumulate enough where I feel comfortable at my own table and think that I know who belongs at my table and who does not. And that is the vicious mistake of Simon the Pharisee. His sense of worth and dignity has been accumulated for reasons he believes he can contact trace and can verify and can chart from his Excel budget sheet. Whereas we understand that no matter who you are in life, everything you've received has been subsidized. Whether it's economic or socially or relationally, and absolutely Jesus of Nazareth argues, definitely spiritual. Your spiritual life is a subsidized reality. Your ability to be an answered prayer in anyone's life is a gift that you've been given. And if there is any way to think about your money, it's to think about it 
as tears wiping on someone's feet. Because ultimately, as you begin to rethink who you are, your ability to understand beauty around you, need around you, life actually as it really is, changes when you understand that everything you have is a gift. And it is a gift that must be given away. Poverty PTSD is not asking you to have so much cash you don't feel poor anymore. It really isn't. I've never been on a subway and saw someone asking for money and saw two people, one with Apple AirPods and one a woman with three small children and thought, the person with Apple AirPods is probably going to give that person a dollar. You know that's not what's going to happen. Because our awareness of need correlates with our understanding that we too have been given great gifts. Poverty is not a sense that we deserve more it's that we are not given nearly enough. But even in these moments, we know that we can be an answered prayer. And even today, I have a chance to consume. I have a chance to hoard. Or I have a chance to say, from whatever I have, for what little I have, I can be an answered prayer because I do not want my money to be a reflection of how good I budgeted this week. I want my budget to be like everything in my life, something that redirects other people to a sense of what is possible. And what is possible in your life is not something that you accrue and accumulate. It's just the confidence that in every situation, you are the best option for everyone nearby. And we are empowered by what little I have, what nothing I have, just me in the room makes the difference. No matter where you are in life, I trust that you can deal. You can deal. And so think about your life like a cell phone that's already been paid for. You can talk on the phone for however long. There is never a reason to wrap anything up early. Because everything in your life has been paid for because you are alive. You are filled with love. You are filled with mindfulness and thoughtfulness and compassion and intellect. You are so the best option for everyone around you. So find those moments to just give and to live not because there's any lack in your life, it's that it is such the great blessing to give freely because we 
have received, really. I don't know much about Maribel Diaz, but she did something for me once that was really kind. And I think about a lot. I was at work and we had, as a family, put my dog Coco to sleep. We had her for maybe seven to eight years. And I don't know, I don't think I was like super torn up about Coco and I liked Coco. I thought Coco was a really incredible dog. Um, but Coco wasn't my spirit animal. But obviously, I'm just so emotionally stunted at this point. Who knows how I was feeling about Coco dying. I I just knew I went to school, and then I went to work, and I knew I was never going to see Coco again. So I'm sitting in the basement of this museum, telling Maribel Diaz that, yeah, this is what happened. Like, Coco isn't going to be a part of our life anymore. At the end of my shift, when we were all headed out around 7 p.m., Maribel Diaz arrives, and she gives me this Christmas ornament of a dog, and she says, Robert, I stole it from the gift shop. What? Maribel Diaz stole this Christmas ornament from the gift shop? Because we just put our dog Coco to sleep? I was floored. Now here's what's interesting. Did Maribel Diaz actually steal this Christmas ornament? Or did she just buy it? Because I was a 16 year old kid whose dog just died. And even Maribel, or probably especially Maribel knew, this guy needs something. And that's the spirit where you understand in any moment you can be the person who steals Christmas ornaments because people need to know that they're seen, their pain is real, and that things can be okay. So Maribel, wherever you are, thank you for being a part of my life of that moment in this podcast because truly you were the best option in that moment for me and your kindness made a difference and it makes a difference and it's a lesson I want to share and for us all to share in the weeks ahead.